have not felt satisfied with what you have given us. You remain the same. You keep to your promises, however often we fail in ours. You hold on to us. No one can snatch us out of your hands. The water of life remains always there, is always springing within us, because your Holy Spirit is within us. So we thank you that we, that whatever we go through in life, whatever highs and lows we face, whatever trials, whatever prosperity comes our way, you remain the same. Your truth is always there and that gospel is there. Our Father, we pray for this world that is so very much dry and that there are millions, indeed billions, of those who are thirsting for eternal life even if they do not know it. That we pray for many, many more to come and to taste of that water of life and to be brought into your kingdom. We pray for those whom you have sent throughout this world, even those from other parts of the world that you have sent here to America, all with that goal to present the gospel of Christ, to give light to those who are in darkness, to lead them to the water of life. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would so cause them to taste, to be born again. We pray that for our own community here, for there are many who are lost who yet to know you. We pray that our own church would be a light in this community, that each of us, as we live in our neighborhoods, as we go out throughout this community, that we ourselves would testify Uh, to who Jesus Christ is. And others would come to know him because of our witness. Our Father, we lift up our own needs before you. We pray for those who are physically ill. Pray for their healing. Pray for you to sustain them. Pray for their faith to remain ever strong. We pray for those who are going through difficult uh, circumstances, maybe through work, financially, relationships within the home or with their friends. We pray for your provisions, meet their needs, grant them the wisdom that they need, discernment to make difficult decisions. And then our Father, you you know each one of us here. And none of us is here by accident. You have led us here. And we pray that you would feed us, bless us as we seek to be a blessing unto you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for our scripture reading uh, this morning, or the sermon is on John chapter 4. And pretty much most of that chapter, um, we'll be looking particularly at verses 1 through 30. John chapter 4. And as I go through the sermon, I'll be reading the, the passages, so we'll... Just kind of follow along as we go through the the sermon itself. Now we, um, many of us, I think pretty much we would all agree that we live in an age of scandals. I don't think that we live in an age, or I doubt it, that we live in an age in which there are more scandals to take place now than they used to. And in previous ages, the difference is our uh, technology that allows us to know all the scandals that are taking place, 
that makes it very difficult to keep scandals uh, hidden. Um, The cameras are there. The Internet is there. Our cell phones are there with pictures. It's very difficult uh, to get by without uh, uh, going through a scandal or observing scandals. And I wonder how Jesus would have fared today. Because in our, our passage here, his very simple act of asking for water was a scandal in his day. But it was a scandal that he was evidently willing to cause to reach a loftier goal. So with that in mind, I'm going to actually begin with verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that is, noontime. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you... A Jew asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, we have just observed a horrifying, scandalizing scene. In today's context, this scene, what I just read, would have made the headlines of every news outlet, and Jesus' credibility would have been shot down immediately so that his ministry and his following would have come to ruin. Now, what was it that he did wrong? Well, his disciples would have wondered, what did he ever do right in this particular scenario? He spoke to a woman. He spoke to a woman in a public place, a place where he and the woman whom he did not know We're alone. Now, Jesus is breaking an inviolable taboo in Mideastern culture. It's just not done. His disciples' reaction kind of showed this. When they return later in the story, it says then, when his disciples came back, this is verse 27, they marveled. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with them? His very behavior of just sitting at that well is scandalous. In Middle Eastern culture, that woman had come, when she's coming to the well, he should have gotten up and backed away at least 20 feet so that that woman could safely approach and there should never have been any conversation. So he spoke to a woman. He spoke to a Samaritan woman. And she questioned Jesus about this. You know, what are you talking to me? A woman of Samaria. Now, what's added in here is that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, for that matter, Samaritans didn't have dealings with Jews. There's another occasion where Jesus had tried to enter into a Samaritan town and was refused to entry because of being a Jew who was going to Jerusalem. Now, James and John, his disciples, suggested a response to Jesus. Why don't you call on God to rain down fire on them? 
That's pretty much how they felt. So the enmity between Jew and Samaria was an ancient one. And it's dating back to the exiles of Assyria and Babylon and and um, when the Assyrians uh, dispersed the Jews in the northern kingdom, a few remained, and then they resettled others from other nations who came to live there, so that you ended up with Gentiles and Jews mixing together and getting married, so that you have mixed blood. You have mixed blood and you have mixed religion, because those from the other nations brought their religions as well. And so this was a hostility that had embedded in it ethnic resentment and religious resentment. Now this all then leads us to ask the question, why is Jesus even traveling through Samaria? Now Samaria is territory that is in between two Jewish territories. You have Judea down in the south, you then have Samaria, and you then have Galilee. And that's where Jesus is from. So it lies between there. Even so, Jews, typically, they traveled around. They would not go through Samaria. They did that to avoid uncleanness and hostility. So it's hard to believe, it certainly is hard to believe that Jesus' disciples would have ever recommended this route. It's doubtful that they would have ever agreed to it, at least without protests. Now, our text said Jesus had to pass through Samaria. But there's no reason given why. More likely here is that Jesus felt that he had to in order to accomplish his Father's will. Let me just put it clearly. This scene has all the makings of a setup. The setup that Jesus is causing to take place. Because, you know, you think of another thing here. Why, for that matter... Did all of the disciples, there's at least 12 of them, there's actually probably more, why did all of them leave Jesus alone and they go into the town? And they would have, by the way, properly have had a, a jug, a traveling jug you take with you. When you go to a well, you lower that jug and get the water. They leave Jesus with nothing. Okay. And so again, something is being set up here. This is not an accident. Now, to add to all of the taboos that Jesus is breaking, he's not only speaking to a woman, to a Samaritan woman, he is speaking to a morally loose woman. As Jesus is going to say to her, you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Now, one thing that Jesus is revealing is his supernatural power. But for his critics, what he's revealing is he knows what kind of woman that he is speaking to. You know, there's another occasion. Jesus has been invited to a dinner at a Pharisee's home. A prostitute comes into that home, breaks into that home, falls at his feet. She's literally kissing his feet. And the Pharisee concludes, well, this obviously is not a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is, and he would not have allowed her to touch him. This is scandal. Scandal. I mean, the investigative reporters would have had a field day with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Well, here he is. It's around noontime. He is offending the Samaritan woman, even by asking her for a drink of water. But this woman is not a bashful woman, and she immediately confronts Jesus. You know, 
you know, who do you think you are asking me for water? And she plays right into his hands. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Now we know what Jesus is up to. The saving of a sinner. And he places before this immoral woman who he is and what he has to give. So who is he? Well, he is the gift of God. Now, Samaritans, when they heard that term gift of God, they considered, oh, you're talking about the book, the Torah, the law. That is God's gift. And to a Jew, if he heard that, he would also say, yes, the Torah, the law, and the prophets. That's God's gift. But Jesus is saying, I am God's gift, the word of God in the flesh. For God so loved the world, be it Jew, Gentile, even Samaritans, that he gave his only son. Now, what does Jesus give? Well, he gives the living water. Now, the woman may not have understood what Jesus is alluding to in, in regarding to his identity, you know, about being a gift of God, but she thought she would have understood what he was trying to offer to her right now with that living water. To a Middle Easterner, there was two types of water. There's the underground water, and that's what she was getting from that well, and there's living water. That's the water that comes from a spring or from a river. Living water was fresher, purer than well water. And so she thinks Jesus is claiming to have access to that kind of water, which to her is just an idle boast. And so in verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank uh, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Who do you think you are, stranger? Do you take me for a fool? I mean, there's, there's no spring near this place. And, and by the way, I might just be a, a lowly woman, but I also know my scriptures. And I know my biblical heritage. Not only do you have nothing to give, but you're the one, you're the one who's sinning. Because you're making yourself greater than our father Jacob, the father of our nation. She put Jesus in his place. In verse 13, then, Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So Jesus now plays his hand. He's not here to talk about liquid. He's not here to, he's not offering to do some kind of magician trick and he's going to make water spring out of the ground. He is offering eternal life. It is not the physical body that is his concern, but her soul. More dangerous than physical thirst is spiritual thirst. And more lasting than any liquid water Whatever the source it comes from is the spiritual water that Jesus is offering. 
And that is what quenches thirst forever. And it provides eternal life. Jesus, the gift of God, stands before this woman offering this living water of eternal life. And the woman responds. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And no doubt she was not expecting that answer from Jesus. And, and the, the problem here, and probably she still does not grasp what he's actually saying to her. You know, is, he, is she then just kind of humoring him? It's become clear to her that he's a little, he's a little off, you know, a little crazy. Is she, is she confused by what he's saying? And, you know, she's trying to be nice and, and kind of try to take him seriously. Or is she just outright mocking him with sarcasm? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. You give me this water now and I'll never have to go up and down to drink water again. Well, whatever the case... What Jesus says next wakes her up to the fact that this is someone to take seriously. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Now this, by the way, is what Jesus was expected to have said all along. Okay? It's with the husband that he ought to have been speaking with. And she gives an expected answer. Well, an expected answer for someone who's trying to hide her circumstances. Now he's about to really catch her attention and respect. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And we're going to find out in a moment how much of an impact that this had on her. This idea that Jesus had this kind of special knowledge. Her next words, she's probably trying to change the subject. But I wonder as well if she's also not testing him because you test a prophet. She knows that Jesus is conveying with these embarrassing words that he is a prophet of God. And so she asks a theological question. To see how he answers. It's pretty much what the, like the religious teachers were always asking Jesus questions. They were testing him to find out, is he, is he not from God? So let's read this beginning in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. So again, now Jesus' answer 
to what was an unresolvable issue between the Jews and the Gentiles. This is, you couldn't reconcile these things. This really impacts her. And her response reveals that the subject, for one thing, has gotten a little bit too deep for her. And so she says, well, when the Messiah comes, okay, he'll handle that then. But it also reveals that she has the hope for the Messiah. And there's no reason to doubt her sincerity here. A sinner can hope in God and hope in his promises just as well as anyone else. And so Jesus responds, I who speak to you am he. Can't you feel the power of that statement? And you can be reasonably sure that this immoral Samaritan woman felt it as well. Listen to what she says in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? And that question is not really a question for her. It's a way of her bidding her hearers to consider what she has come to believe. And this passage is filled with many, many application lessons on all kinds of subjects. I mean, we could discuss Jesus' view about women in society and the church, about worship, about evangelism, just to name just a few. But we're going to focus on two right now. And one is I want us to note how Jesus treats everybody. And then what is the primary lesson? What's the whole purpose of this passage? Which is knowing who Jesus is and what he offers. So first of all, how Jesus treats everybody. You know, there was a criticism by Jesus' critics and his enemies that went around this. This guy will associate with just anybody, even notorious sinners. And Jesus explained why. In Matthew 9, 12 through 13, he's being criticized for, for going and having dinner uh, with, with tax collectors. I mean, really bad folks here. And so he responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we talk about treating everyone the same and fairly because of, this, of, of the appropriate concept of equality, the, the dignity of every human being being made in the image of God, and, and that's right. Jesus also understood that every sinner nevertheless has within them the image of God. But more to the point, he knew that everyone, as noble, as good, as high in status as they might seem, is nevertheless a fallen sinner, everyone. All are sick. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs a calling to the kingdom of God, not a bouncer at the door who keeps them out. Everyone is burdened and heavy laden, and they need someone to lift that yoke not to lay more burdens upon them. Everyone is thirsty. Everyone needs the living water that he provides. 
Jesus associates with sinners because he is merciful, because he is a physician, because he is kind and compassionate. To save sinners is the reason that he came into this world. He beheld a world filled with sin, racked with sin, and it moved him as it moved his Father who sent him to save sinners from such misery. That is why he put scandal aside to ask a woman who was a sinner to both the Jews and to the Samaritans. He put that aside to ask for a drink of water. He used the circumstance of his physical thirst to save her from her spiritual thirst. And he did it for no other reason than because of mercy. And that same mercy led him to save such sinners, even such terrible sinners as you and I. And so we have to ask ourselves then, will we not then regard lost sinners, this terrible sinful world, with the same mercy? Will we not befriend them? Will we not make ourselves vulnerable? Show ourselves as as sometimes even needing what our neighbors have to offer so that we can then be in the position of offering to them the living water of our Savior. It can get messy. It can even cause scandal. But then it is mercy. It is mercy, not the sacrifice of of church offerings and, and bringing good gifts to God. It is mercy that our Father desires. And then the second lesson here, which is simply this, that Jesus possesses the living water which quenches the thirst that everybody possesses, and he offers it right now to you. He offers it to you who have already tasted it. And you, you know that you have that salvation, but you have forgotten how satisfying it is. You once knew, but you've allowed the dryness in your life to make you feel thirsty again. You know, like this, like those, you know, you remember the the joy of that first romantic love. And then as time goes, you, you allow that decline of romantic feelings, which is going to happen, to make you feel that, well, maybe the love itself is actually gone as well even though it's always there, and probably, if anything, is even stronger than it was under the, under the romance of the feelings. Well, in the same way, what can happen to us is because we're, we're not feeling the love of God at the moment with great emotion, we, well, we then grow distance from God. Well, then taste again the living water of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Taste His love. Taste the mercy that he has shown you and that he continues to show you. Look to the cross. From that cross springs the water of forgiveness, the water of redemption. And then Jesus offers living water to you who have never tasted it. You've sought refreshing water from, from many fountains. You sought it from romantic love or or pleasures of the flesh, or or fame, or, or fortune, whatever it is that you regard as success. 
You've looked for it in, in travel and, and new adventures. You look for it in entertainment and, or maybe even in doing many good causes. And sometimes you felt like you had found it. But it is still leaves you dry. In the end, you remain as thirsty as ever. You may have ended up like the Samaritan woman who's, who's drudging down and back up that hill with the water that lasts for a day. And perhaps you've become hard like her. Perhaps you have had a, a string of broken relationships and, and broken dreams. Well, there is one who stands before you. And if you would understand who he is, if you would understand his mercy and his love for you, if you would understand the power that he possesses, you would ask him to give you the streams of living water. And why not ask now? He says to you, as he says to others many years ago, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, then out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. And Father, we, we, we do thirst. And whether we are those who, who have known our Lord Jesus, who have tasted of that living water, time and time again we, we grow dry and we thirst. And so we bid to our Lord Jesus to, to give to us that living water. And then if there are anyone here who's never tasted that water, but knows, knows how dry he or she is, and all the more, Father, we, we prayed for our Lord Jesus to give that living water to him, and for your spirit to come into him or, or to her, that they may drink deeply of the springs of living water of eternal life. Give you praise and thanks through Jesus Christ. Amen.